Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have made fascinating career changes and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. I started this podcast to be the resource I wish had existed when I felt stuck in my legal career and was too afraid and didn't know how to follow my dream of a career in fashion. I finally did though and am now a fashion stylist and fashion brand consultant. I'd love to hear about what your dream careers are, so tag Freedom Hunters on Instagram wherever you're listening to us and let me know. In today's episode, I speak with one of Australia's best-known celebrity stylists, Lana Wilkinson. Lana's client list includes some of Australia's most stylish women, including Ruby Rose, Megan Gale and Nadia Bartel. She's even styled the styling queen herself, Rachel Zoe, when she visited Australia. And if you ever see Hollywood's A-list wearing Australian fashion labels, there's a good chance it's because their stylists are all watching Lana. Lana started her career as a receptionist when she was straight out of university, but quickly moved her way into PR and marketing. With her marketing work, she joined shopping centre conglomerate Westfield, where her love of fashion started to get her noticed by designers and retailers. Lana talked to me about how she transitioned from marketing into celebrity styling and then to launching her own shoe collection last October. Not only that, but she recently launched her second shoe collection in the middle of a pandemic. I think everyone will learn so much from Lana's story. She's incredibly honest and candid about the mistakes she made, the moments in business that terrified her, but also what she's learned from them all. I loved her advice about overcoming your fears, working for free, and when and how to start charging for your work. Lana is warm, funny, and so inspiring in the way she takes on challenges and ultimately succeeds. I hope you enjoy this episode of Freedom Hunters. So Lana Wilkinson, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. What a privilege. Um, No, I'm really excited to chat. We're talking to you over Zoom and you're in back in lockdown in Melbourne. Um, how's that going? Um, it is, it's an interesting time. I think the second time is a lot more challenging than what I even anticipated. And a lot of people don't know this, and I, I know I just touched on it before when we, we just jumped on, was I was in a postcode that was considered a hotspot, even though because my suburb is shared with two other suburbs, but our suburb didn't didn't have any cases. It all gets very controversial, the blame game, who did it? Um, and so this is actually my third week, so I've got a week and a half on everybody else. Um, but it's it's been um, an interesting time, I think, for the world, right? Like I can't believe in a lot of ways that we're even here. But I do think on the positive, I always, especially since this happened, I've always tried to think about what, what's the positive or the silver lining that we can take from this? Because I think if nothing, we've been given the gift of time to reflect and I feel like what it has done is probably connected us more, you know, in a lot of ways and made us feel very grateful. So, but I think by the time the six weeks is up, I'm, I'm going to feel really grateful and ready to get back into it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're here to talk about your career and in particular how you kind of transitioned and changed your career from, well, let's get into it. Um, so I want to start right back at the beginning. So where did you grow up and what kind of kid were you? What were you into? I was, um, I love these questions when it's all the way back. Um, I talk a lot, so I'll try and keep it tight for you. I was a really 
was a, I was a very social child. Um, I was a little bit of a performer, which would not shock anybody who knows me quite well. Um, I was always like, where's my stage? Um, <laughs> so I was a really happy kid. I played a lot of sport, a lot of team sport. Um, and, you know, even in my business today, I, one of my taglines I put on Instagram sometimes is one team, one dream. So I think I very much kind of inhabited that quite early on. Um, it was, you know, quite a, it sounds a bit boring, I guess, but I grew up with a, a in a loving family um a dad who worked exceptionally hard uh he had his own business with his brother and um still does and so i grew up in a in a way where you know i was taught very very young that you know you've got to work hard for the things that you want things don't get handed to you um and uh you know i my mum was almost like the team manager of the tennis team for us so we had a very close relationship my sister and I are really close and she actually works for me now as well, works with me. She'd kill me if I say works for me, works with me. <laughs> so, no, we're, we're a close family and, um, you know, I just I loved fashion as well and I loved hanging out with my friends and I don't think a lot of that's changed too much. And what did you want to be when you grew up? Do you know what? Oddly enough, when I was going through school, particularly around that, you know that in, um, in Australia and around year 10 you have to do that work experience yes. uh, vibe and you go with someone. I really wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I was someone who was quite strong in personality, and in a lot of ways, I still am. Uh, but I wanted to be—I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I, I loved defending people, and I watched a lot of crime television, probably from a really inappropriate age. But um, and so I thought that that's what I wanted to do. And I I went and did some work experience with a, a law firm uh, that looked after family law, and I quickly realised I didn't think I was cut out for that. Um, I just remember watching a lawyer having to fight like it was broken families and things like that and I just thought oh I reckon I'd spend half my days crying so I realized that that really wasn't right for me and then I I remember I in year 12 I had a tutor because for me I really um and this probably wouldn't again shock anybody who knows me quite well but I'm, I'm competitive not with others but with myself um that probably comes from the sporting background but also just really wanted to do well and uh and so I had a tutor help me in year 12 with some of my exams and she said have you ever thought about public relations because you really love being around people I loved entertainment when I was growing up like I was the girl which sounds weird now when I work with celebrities but I was the girl that was watching Joan Rivers do the e-red carpet and I would tape Entertainment Tonight and watch it after school at 4.30. Like, I was that loser. Um, but, I, but I loved it. So I, I think for me, I thought, oh, this sounds like something I can really get my teeth into. And so um, I then got accepted to RMIT uh, in Melbourne, which is Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and they were only accepting 46 students uh, for the public relations degree, and I got in. And I just loved it. I loved media. I loved... I loved writing. I was always very good at writing. So um, I think in the end it's weird now because all of those skill sets apply when you're running your own business. So at that point, so doing public relations at RMIT, did you have an idea of the trajectory that you wanted to go on from there? You know what? I, I want to say yes. I think I, I think I always knew that I wanted uh, – I wanted to do something in television or I wanted to be in the arts in some way. Um, and if I was being really honest, it was funny when you say, what did you want to be when you were grow up, growing up? And I always go to the growing up answer, we say, I want to be a lawyer. But for a long time, I thought I wanted to be an actress because I loved TV and I loved, and I could carry on like nobody's business and turn it on. My family would tell you that. 
Um, so I think in a lot of ways it was almost like I ended up, ironically, a week out of uni finishing. Um, I had an opportunity at Foxtel, which was, which is still, um, well, and at that time was the only kind of main, outside of the network television stations, it was the cable um, station that would develop um, local television and screen overseas products, etc. And I ended up getting the the job as a receptionist at Fox Footy Channel, which is of course the the AFL uh, channel here in Australia. And I just loved it. I loved being on set. I loved being in production. Um, but my my skill set was obviously public relations, and I'd done some marketing and media subjects in that time. So going for the receptionist role was that your mm. plan? Was sort of well, that's my foot in the door and from exactly. there I'm going to 100%. work my way into 100% and little did I know I was making tea but you know what <laughs> you've got to start somewhere you've got to start somewhere I was happy to make tea I remember the gentleman who was the um the general manager of Fox Woody at that time Rick McKenna was also the executive producer of a show that was blowing up in Australia at that time called Kath and Kim so oh, I love was- Kath and Kim yeah, right, right, and this is amazing to me. He was so lovely, but I would make Rick's tea. And um, Gina Riley is who is, um, of course, Kim, is was Rick's wife. So I was like, I'm so in. <laughs> and they were great. And I just, I, it was funny because then I was really friendly with, like, the makeup artists and I wanted to be dressing the people in, in um, the green room. And then you, the thing that's interesting about reception and it's one of the things I say to anybody who's starting out in their career and wants to work hard and start from the bottom up, right, is that you almost get to learn everything and you get to know everything and you get to know everyone. So, like, the director of television at the time, Brian Walsh, who's still the director of television at Foxtel today, I was on, like, hey, Lance, how are you going? Like, you're not going to get those positions once you're in. Does that make sense? Or be in a, a position where you can chat and have those conversations. So in a lot of ways, um, it was really a great step into the door, foot in the door, I should say. And I think initially I realised very quickly I wanted to be working behind the scenes in some capacity. And I think if I was being true, I would have loved to have been at the front. But at that point, I definitely didn't have the confidence to do so. I just kind of thought, oh, I love fashion. I love talking to the guys in the green room about what they're going to wear and the girls. And so anyway... I um, had an opportunity about maybe eight months into that role because Foxtel had some offices upstairs that were sales and marketing and they, you know, like, again, because you're walking around the office, you're talking to people, you're telling them about your studies, et cetera, a position opened up and they said, oh, do you, would you like to, to be our sales and marketing executive? And I was like, yeah, I'm so down for that. I'd love that. Um, and that was a really great role. It, it was a cool job. You know, you had... I had a TV on my desk, a little TV on my desk. Like what? When you're like 20 years old, that's like the bomb, right? So, um, and I just loved that. And I, it was such an interesting journey for me because, you know, I worked on projects that, um, you know, introducing high definition television to Australia and, and working on the retail uh, marketing, you know, strategy for that. Um, I worked on, you know, big launches whenever there were huge um, celebrities that were on big shows like Dexter and things, we would work on bringing them out um, into our offices and doing all the press junkets. So it was a really fun and exciting job and just a cool place to work. So where did you move to next? Because you you were there for 
just a few years? I was I was there for a few years, and then uh, I I again that whole fashion bug was really I really really started to nip away at me, and I thought. I'm loving all this marketing and all this sales stuff and it's cool, but I really, I really love fashion. I know that I'm good at it. And at that stage, I'd roam around the Foxtel office and everyone had sort of stopped me and asked me where everything I was wearing was from. And so then you start to get a bit of confidence, you know, you're like, oh, I know what's up. And then you'd see people buying the things you were wearing. So I was like, oh, I can't have got a knack for this. Anyway, and then I ended up getting a job at Westfield, which of course is the global shopping centre um, uh, conglomerate at that time. And I was working in a project marketing centre just in sort of, oh, not regional Victoria, but it was more country Victoria than the main sort of centres. Um, and that was really uh, quite a great learning and stomping ground. At that point, I didn't think I'd work as hard as that ever in my life. As, and I was like, oh, my gosh, they're really driving the dollar further when you're working for them. But um, I, I think for me in a lot of ways, it really, it kind of really cemented that that's what I wanted to do. And I went to that job with the, um, I guess, the guys of getting to Westfield, Doncaster, with the big fashion centre in Melbourne at that time. It was before Chadston had been um, developed, which is obviously another big fashion centre in Melbourne too. Um, and I managed to get to that centre in 13 months, which was quite an achievement at that point. And that's where I think the styling bug really started to hit home for me because Often, you know, we had these big budgets, but I was working with the designers who were the retailers in that centre. That was the big kind of kahuna, if you will. And I'd meet with them and we'd work on strategies. And then often instead of employing stylists and often some of the stylists that I work with today are people that I was employing to do my centre stuff, which was a bit strange. And But um, I think when I could do those jobs and do some of the visual merchandising or, you know, we didn't have as much budget as we thought and so I'd be running around doing the styling and I just thought, oh, I really love this. I think I think my heart and my work is in this. So just to take a step back, was that a deliberate yeah. and very conscious decision on your part to go and work at Westfields because of that interest in fashion or was it just an opportunity that came up by coincidence I, I went looking for it I went hard pressed looking for it and I think a lot of people couldn't see the potential in me because I'd worked in television you know and I'd worked in a sales and marketing role and they're like well we don't we don't get it and I was like no you don't understand I know exactly what I'm doing I can add so much value in this space so it was 100% a deliberate move by me and so I thought if I keep doing this marketing stuff and I keep building my network because that was the biggest thing. Like the 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 head, my the person that was my direct boss ended up being the head of one of the sort of directors of Foxtel. So to have somebody like that in your corner and the, you know, at Westfield, for example, my direct centre manager is now the, um, the head of uh, Chadston in Melbourne and another big centre, the Emporium in Melbourne, both big fashion centres. So... I really do I, do, I was very conscious during that process and I think I was taught that from my dad, right? Because remember how I said he worked in business is who you meet on the way up is there on the way down and make sure you treat people the way you wish to be treated and don't burn your bridges. So I was always very conscious of that. Then, then I guess to fast forward when I was at Westfield Doncaster, I had so many great opportunities where I was running the fashion campaigns each season. I was doing all the digital. I was managing the website. I'd worked on the app. And at that point, apps were very new and Westfield was definitely leading the way in that space. 
So I was very challenged, but then, um, and again, I got a little bit, a little bit posh because I'd been at Doncaster and they said, Oh, we want to ship you out to one of the smaller centers again. And you'd be a marketing manager. I thought, I don't want to do that. I love fashion and this is the brass ring. If I can't stay here, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to keep doing the same thing somewhere else or take another step back. And then I had a, I decided I just got engaged as well to my husband, Liam, and I stupidly three months out of our wedding decided I'd take on a new job that would then perhaps allow me to explore this fashion side. Um, I ended up taking a job at Stockland, which is a land and property group, so not fashion, not retail to a degree, but a different kind of retail. And about... Oh, probably just before I took that job on, I'd had a phone call from a friend of mine who was uh, being cast on a reality show and she had seen, because back then Facebook, I'm sounding like I'm 100 years old, but about nine years ago, <laughs> Facebook was very much the big social media channel and she was seeing that, um, you know, I'd, a lot of designers were talking to me because I'd met them through my days at Westfield. Anyway, um, she said, would you dress me? for um, this show. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. I've got a few relationships. I can do that on the side. Um, and then it kind of grew from there. So I started dressing her, calling on the brands that I'd worked with. Instagram was starting out at that point as well and Twitter was big. So I just started posting these pictures all the while working in this new job, trying to prove myself, um, get married. So it was a lot going on. Anyway, somewhere between... After I got married and then the three years that I was at Stockland, my little hobby started to blow up in a way where, you know, I couldn't call in sick. Not that I did that a lot because I'd worked for my dad who hated that. So I'd take leave days when I had to do things like, you know, the Brownland Medal, which is a red carpet here in Australia. Um, and I couldn't really hide it anymore because social media, as we know, if you're doing something, usually someone's posting something about it. So... I had to then wear these dual hats um, and so I found that extremely challenging because my work ethic was that I'd be in at sort of 7.38 o'clock during the week, I'd work till 8 o'clock at night and then what I started to do to kind of document my work at that time and what was kind of in, if you will, was to have a blog. And so I started sharing and posting images of my work i do kind of kind of like, like what instagram instagram does now you do like a polyvore and show where you could buy things and i'd post it so that sort of was how my career started it was very much a little bit fake it till you make it i was doing the work but because i was working in this full-time job that was a very serious job it was three figures like i was managing multi-million budgets but then at night to feed this fashion passion I would work on my blog or I'd be, you know, sourcing on email to PR agencies to get product for my friend and then her friend needed stuff and then I'd be getting stuff for her and it was just this cycle, I guess, of just working around the clock with very little sleep and not getting paid for the styling stuff either because you have to prove yourself and fashion is very much kind of you live and die and you fall on the sword. And and I think that's always stuck with me. Even now when I have interns, I hate having interns because I want to pay people because I know how hard it is. Um, and somewhere along that line, it was probably about three years that I did that for, which was quite significant. Wow. And by this stage, like I was doing red carpets, I was doing spring carnivals, and I'd started to, to have media ask me to do things and go to events. 
which sounds seemed very surreal. Um, and then I got pregnant. I went, sorry, pardon me. I went over to New York with my husband. And then I was like, oh, I just, I need to just be focusing. I've got to back myself in. And there's a theme that comes through here, right? Is there's also that self doubt that you have. And, you know, this is what you're good at and what people know you for and what people pay you for. And by this stage, I'm married. I've got a mortgage. I found out when I was in New York that I was pregnant with my first daughter, Ada Ava, who is now, she'll be seven in October. And I was like, oh, now everything's over. I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. Passion's over. It's, you know, and that's what we do as women, don't we? We put the, that pressure on ourselves that we can't do everything. Or, and I think at that point, I wasn't sure if I could do everything because I knew the pace. I was, you know, running on a smell of an oil in Iraq. Like I was, you know, you're talking four hours, maybe five a night. And then on the weekends, I was doing photo shoots. And by that stage, I ended up getting this, um, role as uh, like a fashion expert or the main director, if you will, for a magazine called Covet, which would style celebrities, which gave me my first taste of that. And I I started to see that I was good at it. And the brands I was working with could see I was good at it because Instagram was still in its infancy. And so I'd be on set and sharing photos and then, you know, you'd put them on your Instagram and then they would sell. And you were like, right. And then I started to quickly recognise there was quite a clear conduit between me being the, I guess again the conduit between the the mark the the consumer and the brand, and showing them how to wear it and answering those questions. Things that became that I felt was so simple to me, like oh duh, you put this with this, but a lot of people don't know that stuff, or they don't they don't necessarily feel confident enough to know that stuff in their decision making. So I quickly was able to see hang on a second, if I start sharing all the behind the scenes of what I'm doing, you know, there might be a bit of an appetite for this and and there certainly was because no one in Australia was really doing that, you know. It was very much you weren't really a real stylist because you didn't work at a magazine or you weren't at a network and, you know, that was a really harsh feeling at the time, uh, you know, because I it, it wasn't necessarily, it was a digital magazine and, oh, who's going to read that? I mean, you fast forward to now and it's like, <laughs> duh, right? I have to think I was ahead of my time, but it does. It really beats up your soul. Um, Absolutely. And then for me, I think where it became an, 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 a necessary thing to kind of really either lean into or not was when, you know, I was coming up from my maternity leave at Stockland and and I, I must admit, wearing the jewel hats did start to become tiresome because you're almost having to apologise for the fact that, you know, you're, you're, you're working so hard. And I was always very conscious that they were worried I wasn't doing the work I was supposed to be doing. And I absolutely was. That's why I wasn't sleeping. But you kind of, when you're a perfectionist the way I am, I was always like, I've got to make sure. And it's almost like you've worked extra hard to overcompensate for it, which I think in the end just became exhausting. Mm. And I, I think a lot of people who whether you're in fashion or, you know, if you're wanting to change careers and your your passion or your hobby starts to potentially become a viable business, you're at a bit of a crossroads, right, of what does this mean? And if I back myself, what's going to happen? And there's that, that cheesy saying that I can really relate to, but it's that, you know, what if I fall? But darling, what if you fly? And I think for me it just came that moment and it was nudged on a little bit by I got this phone call and at this stage I was probably 32 weeks pregnant and I remember I was getting a scan with my husband 
And I got a phone call from the Victoria Racing Club, which, you know, in England is probably equivalent to Ascot, calling you to say, we've got the Melbourne Cup, we're doing a tour of New Zealand, we're taking all these models and we want you to style it and we want you to speak and we want you to be there. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. And it was like put a quote in. So most people would just be like, this is a great op for you, share this. But this was the big deal. This was what I was working towards, right? And I remember saying, running back into my obstetrician going, what's the cutoff that you can fly? And I made it by like one week. Oh, wow. So it was just meant to be. So it just gave me the nudge I finally needed to say, you can do this. And I took that role and I, I went over to New Zealand. I was as heavy as can be. I was, it was unbelievable really. But I'll always be forever indebted to the Victorian Racing Club for employing me to do that job because it changed my life. I kind of was like, I can do this. So was that the tipping point where you stopped working for free and started charging for your services? Yeah. And I think because I was about to have a child as well, it became... I can't do that. And I think as well too, and it's the lesson I try and pass on to young designers or stylists or anyone really when you're starting out in a business, and I wish that I'd had somebody to kind of lean on. I wish there were forums such as this, that, but there just wasn't. Like it was almost particularly in fashion, it wasn't friendly. Like people were not nice. It was almost like you're a threat. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, I don't even know how to quote. My thing was is I knew how to quote things because I'd been on the other side. I'd employed stylists to do my campaigns. I was going to ask you, how did you know what to charge? Because there's not a lot of transparency in a lot of creative industries. And the thing about about a lot of things in fashion is people don't see the value. They don't understand the time, particularly in styling. They Like a makeup artist, you can see their work. They come in, they do their thing. A stylist, their work's done... For, for days beforehand and by the time they come people just see a rack and they see that's the work then a makeup or a hair person and I love my hair and makeup teams they'll kill me for saying this but they roll in and they roll out and a stylist or a designer they're packing down for days they're doing returns the overheads are through the roof mm, the dry cleaning for me for, uh-huh. and see did I mention before that was the bit of my story that I missed when you were asking when I grew up. My father was a dry cleaner. That was their business. <laughs> so thank goodness. Brilliant. Because my over- oh, I just saved so much money. Oh, my because God, yes. when I was working with talent, right, I'd be like, oh, like I wouldn't return. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever show anybody that. I'd have to clean it myself. That is horrific, especially when you're starting out. There's not a lot of respect. It was like, whereas now things come back to me pristine. Yeah. And my thing on that, I think, again, because of my upbringing, I worked in a dry cleaners, I can spot a stain a mile away, which is a sick problem to have. But I was very, you know, the things should be given to you, given back the way they were given, and you should care for things like they're your own. Yeah. And so I've always had that philosophy, which is probably the reason I've been, I hate using the word being successful because I feel like I haven't even touched, tipped the iceberg yet, but... Um, I think that's one of the reasons that I've got the relationships I do for so long and I've got the clientele that I do and the brand, I guess, reputation that I do because you've, you've got to have those things because you've got to think if that's your money and your business, you want to make sure that somebody's caring about that. What comes through really clear is your work ethic and it sounds like that has come from your dad. Um, oh, 100%. Yeah, that's definitely 
um, you know, a big part of your success. Is there anything else? Because sometimes some people say it's just they they just had luck at some point as well. What would you contribute your success to? It's interesting, you know, because I've heard I've heard people say that before. Go, oh, is it luck? And I think it's a bit. It sounds a bit cheesy, but I think it's fortune. I think you make. I, I like to think I made a lot of the things happen for myself. You know, you can't. If you want a door to be open, you might have to bash that down yourself. And that I think, for me, a lot of the time, especially in the industry that I was in previously. So I was in a corporate role where I was respected and, you know, people would go, this is our budget, this is our strategy, what do you think? And I was listened to. And then I remember, you know, I remember one time very early on being on set with someone who was just so rude, treated me like something I stepped in, which was quite a different thing because you think Monday to Friday I'm this person and on the weekend this person, sorry, what's your name, is is treating you like, you know, like a servant, really. Even though I'm a, I'm in service, but I'm not rude and I'm not and I'm polite. And so those things kind of stay with you, I think. So I think there's a few things. I think it's about having resilience. Knowing who you are is really important, I think. Knowing your self worth, and I'm not talking about putting a dollar value. I'm talking about just what you're prepared to take and what you're not. I think I think that your relationships are key. Like for me, having the you know, like, for example, early on, if people would send me product, I'd follow up and I'd let them know. I'd say, thank you so much. Like, build relationships, build rapport with people. Don't just take. Say please, say thank you. You know, those were the things for me that were just fundamental because I really do believe and they're just small little value systems that I have, but treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, I was willing to do the work as well. Like, I... A lot of people I've had sort of test run, if you will, to, for certain jobs that I've had or, you know, different projects. Like I'll bring people on when we're doing spring racing, which is, mon- you know, monumental for me in terms of how much work we do. And they all want to be sort of you straight out the gate. I don't want to say all because that's not the case. I've got a brilliant brand manager who works with me who started off assisting me. Um, but I think I connected with her because she was willing to do the work, you know, do the hard yards because I still do the hard yards. I never ask anyone to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself. Yeah. I think that that's having that that attitude, that can-do attitude, mm. make it count, you know, and I think I always tried to do that. And I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit of a motor mouth as well. So I think I became memorable by virtue of just chatting. <laughs> I love that though. It was this VRC job in New Zealand that was that tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you were able to start charging. Um Working free, I think, is a great way if you're just starting out to, you know, get experience, make contacts, establish your reputation. But obviously that's not sustainable. So what advice would you give people who are in that situation? When do you start to charge and when do you stop? I think you've got to have the conversation at the beginning. So that was something I learned and I'll, I'll share another little anecdote um, that I had that was very almost tore my heart out because I couldn't believe it happened. But it happened because I didn't value myself enough and have the conversation. So perhaps it's a case of saying, okay, so if we were to work beyond this point or if this works for us, we'll have to, like, it's almost like you're preempting a conversation. Let's have a chat and we'll revisit it because I'd probably need to talk about, you know, charging you. And then if you've set a precedent that you're going to have a conversation, when the time comes and you know when it comes, 
You know, like I had somebody where I was working around the clock for and it got to a point when VRC had sort of given me that validation that I needed. And in fact, if I'm being honest, the validation came before that. I just wasn't brave enough to own it. You know, I was doing red carpets for the Brownlow Medal and my girls were like best dressed and me you were coming to me. Probably could have done it from then. But in my mindset, I was like, oh, I'm not really, I'm not really doing this because I'm working full time. So I'm not really doing this. And it's like, yes, you are. You've got to back yourself in and that's hard. And, you know, I'd, I'd come from that, you know, the family I was talking about where my dad and my mum were like, you know, don't let people use you up. Is there money in this really? Can you can you really have a business with this? Is this is this really going to, do you love it? Because, you, you know, I just don't want you to get used up. And that ends up being almost this fuel to be like, not I'm going to show you because that was coming, their intent was coming from a loving place. But for me, I was like, I'm, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to aim to be the best at it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let this be my fuel. And that that worked for me because that's my personality, right? But that's not everyone. So if you at least put the, the conversation in place at the beginning so you can revisit it, I had an example of where I didn't do that, which was the tipping point for me, and, in fact, where I then decided I needed somebody to talk about the dollars and cents, okay? So that was the next bit that came when you start to go, I'm actually not valuing myself the way I should. And it was because um, at this stage I'd worked with a couple of sort of very well-known celebrities and I'd had a great reputation with their managers who then referred me to a, um AFL footballer whose wife, and in Melbourne AFL is a really big deal. Like I look back now and I go, I should have just said no thank you or asked the question, but it was a Tuesday and the person's wedding was on a Saturday. So that week, you got that? <laughs> And right there, right there is odd. How come you've been planning a wedding dress and you're not happy and it's Saturday and it's it's on Saturday in a destination wedding so you only really have four business days and you want a dress? Right there should have said nutcase. <laughs> but <laughs> I decided that I would take it on because the girl was crying on the phone the manager's going oh we know you work with such and such you'll be able to get this done and she'd reached out to brands that i had exceptional relationships with and i knew i could get them to do that for me because it's like when people you know it's like when you're in your industry you know where the parameters are it's like when someone says it takes six months to make a wedding dress i've had red carpet dresses made in 24 hours it can be done is it a good situation no but it can be done it's like I'm too booked, I'm too busy, we'll pay you this much, we'll give you this. Okay, I can do it. Like human nature, everyone's got a price, you've just got to find out what it is, right, which probably sounds quite shallow, but it's worked for me. Um, so I ended up taking this on. Now the mistake I made was because this particular girl knew other people that I had done the brown low for, where at this stage I'd started to charge a little bit, not exorbitant, but with those events I'd managed to get a lot of PR out of it for myself, whereas this was going to be a secret. No one was going to know about this. And so cut a long story short, I managed to work through the night, managed to get two big designers who then were going to do a custom, picked the fabrics, went and picked the fabrics, which normally I wouldn't do, but because we're on such a time crunch I needed to make sure it was perfect. She had two fittings, maybe three. Dress was done, got her loaned jewellery, loaned shoes and the wedding went off without a hitch and nobody knew about this. I Amazing. Then, yeah, right? You got, and did I mention I had a three-month-old Ava? Three oh months God. old. Send the bill and it was $1,500. 
which is my pocket change for my rates these days. But back then, but that was for four days work. You know, that's like a day rate now. But back then I was like, so I was still doing it on the cheap because I was like, I feel sorry for you. I can't imagine this being, and the girl was lovely until she got the bill and decided that she'd text, email me after she'd paid the designer and said, well, I think you you got to work with these designers so I shouldn't have to pay you. Oh, you're kidding. And I got a check dropped off for $1,000 because I think she was then worried that I was going to tell other people in my letterbox. And I was gutted for days because I went with Lana the person, I feel sorry for you, instead of protecting myself. Mm. I, I needed to use the power of what I could bring to the table. But I, she'd already got what she needed from me. Yeah. So I decided then and then I'm going to have somebody talk about my dollars and cents now. You're, and, and to this day that person, it's funny, is around and I often think you're the one that's got to look me in the face now. So then sometimes that's your feel again, right? It's like I'll show you. <laughs> so, um, which sounds quite negative, it's not, but I think it's like it's important I think to share not everything is as it seems nowadays, particularly while we're all going through the horror year that we've all had is, you know, sometimes our only window into what's going on is social media. And looked at the paper those weeks or the social media, it all looks like it was amazing and beautiful and fantastic when, in fact, a lot of the stuff isn't what's going on behind the scenes. And I think sometimes we need to be kind to ourselves and remember that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's such a good lesson there to just value yourself and back yourself in these situations right. as well. Value what and you're I doing. never had like that ever again. The point of the story is that you've got to be able to know your worth of what's okay for you. And if that person doesn't like that, then that's not the person you should be working for. It's not worth it, mm. you know. And I think at that time I didn't, I couldn't see that for myself. And then, you know, when somebody else starts to see your value and be able to say, well, this is what it is, and some jobs you'll get and some you won't, or they'll find somebody that's going to get cheaper, but I really, who will do it cheaper, sorry, but I really do believe what's meant for you will be for you. So those those sort of hurdles along the journey are to test you and to make, which is ironic because I feel like we're all being tested right now, right? And it's like you have to go back to those insecurities and you have to be in touch with yourself and who you are and what you're willing to accept and not and what you where you're willing to be pushed and where you're not. I mean, that's amazing advice. Um, but I want to go back to your story now because... Ooh. You've been styling for a while, for quite a few years, and then last year you launched mm. your own shoe line. Now, I did. <laughs> talk me through this. Was it something you always wanted to do, or did that sort of dream evolve while you were styling? Honestly, always. I think I wanted to be a shoe designer before I wanted to be a stylist. I knew, I remember being that girl watching fashion TV on Foxtel because I was working for Foxtel, so I'd have that on my TV at work. And I was, all, I remember Terry Viviano, who's a Sydney designer, had, had I don't know if she still does, I don't if she does, she doesn't push it out too much, but she was a shoe designer and there was a, um, a, a show that she did at Fashion Week. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. I want to have something like that. That's amazing. But for me, I think I organically, I knew the fashion side. Like I knew my brands. I knew what things I loved, I loved red carpet. That was my sweet spot. 
And then as an, as, cause I did fall into that. And then I was working with amazing talent, both Australian and international. I'd started to recognize there was quite a gap in that middle range market. So there was the sort of more mainstream brands that basically were cheaper versions of the really expensive vans. There was, and then, you know, by the time sort of high street really came into Australia, you had your Zara's and your H&M's and then they had shoe product that was, you know, 80, $90 Australian. And then there was the really expensive stuff that I really like, like the Gucci and the, you know, Aquasura and the Bottega and all of that. So I was finding when I was styling people, and again, this is the perfectionist in me, right, that near enough wasn't good enough and that sometimes, particularly when you were working with corporates, say, for example, like a Victoria Racing Club that I've mentioned before where their brand affiliate is Maya, the department stores. So you have to pull from Maya purchase product. So sometimes it's like you're not actually able to be as creative as you can be when you're doing like a custom gown. So then you've got to throw some glitter at it, right? I was like, I need some glitter. <laughs> anyway, so I started to build up this huge shoe wardrobe because I was like the free option wasn't the best option. And samples with shoes when you're a stylist, any stylist will tell you, are really hard to come by. And shoes as a business is a lot harder as well because of sizes. You don't necessarily have what everybody wants. You might be able to sell out if you only have size 40, but then you're still not making someone happy because they want a size 35, but you started a 36. So shoes I went down was one of those things that I, I, I needed a lot of all the time. And for me, halfway through, and by this stage, I had had, I'd really kicked some huge goals and I was working with both racing clubs in Australia, be it Caulfield, um, Melbourne Racing Club, Victoria Racing Club. I was doing uh, the red carpet for the Brownlow. I was doing the Actor Awards. I was doing the Logies. And so I needed cool, amazing shoes. But one year, it was probably in 2016 from the, what we call the event season, which will sadly be in hiatus this year, I think, but August through to December, I'd spent $8,000 on shoes for my talent. And often I'd buy their mine and I wouldn't wear them. They'd be on the girls, you know, and they'd be wearing them. It's like, you know, okay, Beck Judd's got them one day, Elise Knowles will wear this pair another day, Megan Gale's coming, I'll get her to wear that. So it was just this revolving. And then I ended up with this huge shoe wardrobe, which was quite epic, a bit depressing when you worked it out, but <laughs> but amazing. And so, and so that was always my kit. So I was never the stylist taping shoes. I always had my own. Um so for me, I recognized very quickly there was, a, there was a big gap for what I needed. Um, and I wanted some, something that was a bit different. I wanted metallics, like I hate new shoes, um, but I, I am succumbing and I'll, I'll talk about that later, but there's a few where I'll, I'll have them, but they've got to be a little bit different. I can't just have a new pump. You'll never see a new pump in my range. It's not me. I just think accessories can really make it the outfit. And a lot of the times when I was styling, they were the tools you would use. So it changed the way, you know, um, I was seen as a stylist too. It was almost like she'd nailed the hair, the makeup, the outfit, the accessories, which is what styling is, right? It's just mm. a basic thing. You know, a lot of times people think styling is just getting the outfit. For me, it's everything, everything. Mm. And then it's about making sure that person's like feeling themselves. So for me, that was this, I guess, the way I wanted to go into the shoe brand was like, I want to make people feel good and I want to be able to create something that's aspirational i knew i wanted that i didn't want it to be you know just mass produced where there's just so many styles out and people you know everybody can have them because i was you know as a stylist i often was too scared to ask for product for myself even when designers started offering it to me to wear because i'd have media commitments or ambassadorships 
because I was again like, oh, if it's a really amazing piece, I need to save it for my talent. So I would buy things and then I would want to put all my outfits together so that I guess I had those moments for myself. And then that way I was always treating the client like they were number one, you know, because my biggest fear when I started my brand and that's why I didn't tell anyone for a really long time that I was even doing it was I just didn't want them to think that I was going to neglect them or that, that they weren't going to be feeling good and feel like number one if I was styling and then working on this on the side. Mm. So I decided when I did my brand that I wanted it to have all of those elements in it. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that the, the quality was, you know, it was an upper leather and an upper lining because it's more comfortable. You know, I put people in, um, you know, shoes for race, races for the day and they'd be coming over to me after they've had five drinks and go, I'm actually going to kill you. Is it killing my feet? And I'd be like, no pain, no gain, Joel. That photo's going everywhere. It's all over the internet. We're good here. You know, that's best for us. You're done. You know? So I think, I think for me I really wanted to bring that, I guess, that comfort but also that fashion aspect. And so for me the brand was really birthed from that and I wanted it to be where people feel the best of themselves and that's why even with the communication that we do um, and, and the sorts of people that we showcase, you know, I've got an amazing stylist in Melbourne by the name of um, Denny, Style by Denny. Follow him. He's amazing. Oh, I do follow him. He's great. Yeah, Yeah, he's become really a beautiful friend of mine as well. Just good for the soul, Denny. Mm. I love his dancing. He does his amazing dancing. He needs his own show. He needs his own show. He's incredible. And I I knew Denny um, as the Cosmo editor, Cosmopolitan editor for fashion. And so we did a lot of work then. And I remember going up to him at Fashion Week. So we connected very quickly. And one day he asked me if he could um, uh, borrow some shoes for the shoot. He goes, I love these. And I knew from his Instagram, I said, babe, I'll send you a pair. I was like, oh, really? I was like, yeah. And then he posted this epic outfit. He's wearing Effie Caps, who's another designer friend of mine, this red outfit and Levi's and my shoes. And I was like, I'm putting that up on my Instagram. And he was like, Lana, you've made my day. I was like, yeah. I was like, you are working those shoes. So I'm sure he won't mind me using that as an example. But for me, I want it to be for everyone. I don't care who you are. If you feel good, I've done my, like, that makes my day. Like, that makes me go, if you're feeling really special and right now, you know, the, the marketing terms that we used to launch this next piece was stepping out because mm. we're stepping out of this, although now we're stepping back in, but then yeah. we'll step out again. Back when you first started your uh, shoe line, how did you figure mm. it all out, like the design, the production, the pricing, the margin? Mm. How did you work on all of that? Well, again, it, it goes back to my network and my relationships. So I had a lot of people... In terms of the first bit, the kickoff came with my manager, Prue Corrigan, One Day Dream. So I had told her when I signed with her because it was kind of getting to that point where people were wanting me to, um, I guess, you know, front campaigns and do things. Anyway, and we had connected straight out of the gate and she said to me, what do you want to do? What do you really want? That's a pretty dawning question when someone says, what do you really want? And I said, oh, I want my own shoe brand. I've wanted my own shoe brand for a really long time. I've got no idea what to do. Um, I don't know if people would buy it. I'm not sure. But I know, I know I know what I'm doing. I can make that happen. I've got a good eye. Anyway, maybe two or three weeks went by and we had her Christmas party uh, in Bondi because she had a Sydney office. 
And I thought I was just going along and I'd phone myself up because she'd been really amazing to me and so had the team there. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I want to, again, that whole relationships thing. People have done good things for you. If you can, go and do give back and spend that extra time. And so I did and we were at Hotel Revisis, which is just along um, the main street in Bondi there. And I'd come all dressed up and Prue's like, oh, before we go to the party, we're going to take a meeting. I was like, okay. So I go out and there's this um, amazing woman uh, and I, I won't say who she is in case she, she doesn't want everybody to know this, but um, she had has been a, a shoe buyer and in the game for probably 15 years, knows everybody. And she introduces herself and she's working and she works for a, you know, a major e-commerce retailer and says to me, so I hear you want to do this. Ask me whatever you want. So I just went to town and said, oh, how do you do this and what's this and how should we? And she was so amazing. And she recommended two manufacturers that she thought would be incredible. And then a week later, she said, they'll, they'll take a meeting with you. I've made a phone call for you, but the rest is up to you. Wow. So the next thing, a week later, Pru and I are in this meeting. I've come with the shoes that I want to use to inspire me. But, and some of them are old. Like I'm talking my mum old in 80s that I was like, I want to use Perspex. It's cool. I want to, I want to bring this element of this shoe, but I don't want to copy it. I want it to be really different. And, and so then I, we, we started sampling and I connected with them immediately. But then again, that whole no idea, I just started sampling all their shoes, not realizing how much they were going to cost. <laughs> and so we got to like the process where we'd nailed it of what we wanted. I think I had about maybe 25 pairs. This is going to cost like $300,000. I've not done my homework. I can't do this. Like, because I'd already decided at that point as well, and it's probably coming through on quite a control freak. <laughs> so I wasn't going to have a business partner. I didn't want an investor. Um, I knew, and then by this stage, I'd done and was working towards doing so much work on the brand of what Lana Wilkinson is someone you can trust, someone who can put things together. The designers by this stage, had really backed me in a lot of different ways uh, and, you know, I was the first to work with lots of product that was coming to Australia. When internationals were coming, I was the first person being asked to dress them. So there were all these amazing opportunities. So I'd done that work, that side of it, in terms of building up who I am and what I'm about. But for me, I, I realised, is that going to be enough? And I thought, I've just got to roll the dice here. And then I spoke to a lot of my designer friends um, just through years of, you know, having these moments. There was a lot of trust and... They'd sort of showed me, I remember a girlfriend of mine showed me like a spreadsheet to work out your margins and how much you need to charge. And and again, I'd had friends who were in wholesaling and I leaned on them and I asked them. So I, it wasn't something that, it was a team sport, you know what I mean? So whilst I was paying for everything and rolling the dice myself and the risk was all mine, the relationships and some of them back from when I was at Westfield that I called on to say, hey, can I pick your brain? And because I'd done the right things by them and helped them when they needed things, I was able to, to call on those things. So that's that whole idea, right? If we go back to the start, don't burn your bridges because you don't know when you're going to need people. Mm. It sounds quite sort of strategic, but in business you kind of have to be and you have to be unapologetic for it. And that's something that I've only learned in the last year, to be honest, in having my own business because I used to apologise all the time. But you can't when it's your money and your business. And so... The digital side, because of my and, and the things that go along with the brand in terms of website, you know, styling a shoot, promoting a product, that was my sweet spot. I'd been doing that for years. You know, Lana Wilkinson, the person, was marketed that way. Um, but as far as the, you know, 
the, the actual making of the shoe, that was a really different process for me, like talking about lasts and that they've got to be cut a certain way. And, you know, I go, I want this fabric with this fabric. And they're like, you can't do that because it's not going to not gonna stay. And there were lots of learnings that I won't lie in hindsight because I was kind of keeping this as my dirty dark secret that I was working on and then working so hard on the outside with all the projects I was running at the same time meant that perhaps there were just mistakes that happen and people don't talk about mistakes but also mistakes are learnings and opportunities and they're the things now that when it was happening I would freak out right so I remember there was this particular shoe that had perspex on the side and we're just trying to get it right and it kept coming back and it was wrong and you start to then lose faith oh my gosh what are we going to do and it ended up just it can't sit the way I want it to well just tell me that and we'll move on because I don't want it to not be perfect but then I think that's the thing as well that I learned is my version of perfect isn't necessarily the customer's version of perfect because right. it's your first one. You're going to evolve. And what you think people are going to buy is different to what they actually buy, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember my manufacturer, and this is where, too, on the flip side of that, I really stuck to my guns of what I knew my brand was. I said, I don't want to be like those brands. That's not my brand. If somebody can go and buy that. They're a customer. They're loyal to that brand. That brand's been around for 20 years. I'm not trying to compete with that. I'm not competing with anyone. This is different. This is occasional dress wear. Make you feel good. Make you feel cool. I can't buy this anywhere else. So I knew that from the outset. There were hurdles that I wasn't anticipating, um, you know, the sampling process in and of itself. And I then layered that with wanting to have this big event to launch it, which was amazing, but it added pressure that, to be honest, I probably didn't need because what ended up happening was there was a few samples that weren't perfect and so the dates kept getting pushed out. And I remember there was a real light bulb moment for me that I think changed my thinking forever and I happened to be away with a lot of business people at the time in New Zealand actually a lot of good things happened to me in New Zealand <laughs> um, but uh, I was away with the team from Jagged who of course um, is a you know two, there's two brilliant women or there's a few of them but Michelle Green and Rebecca Judd and um, and Laura Henshaw from Keep It Cleaner was away with this as well oh, yeah. all women in business thank yeah. God I was with women in business and they, um, I'd had an issue with my production and I was supposed to have this Zoom meeting to look at the final things. These are final productions. This is what's coming to market. So we'd had a break in our sessions from when we were over there and I've gone to do this exact thing we're doing right now and they tell me they can't show them to me because they're that horrific and they're all wrong. Oh, God. And the event is weeks. And I'm like, life over. What am I going to do? <laughs> And it just happened that someone in the factory that day just didn't have their, I've got my IQ and brain on and didn't care. But I didn't know that. I'm thinking, my life's over. This is horrible. This is my name. I've got my name on my shoes. Should I have done that? Everyone trusts me. Now I'm going to have to tell these people. But I was with the right people who just talked me off the ledge, for lack of a better term, um, and said, you're good. This is normal. This is what happens. This is part of production business. Do not worry. And so hearing it from very successful people made you kind of go, okay, just take a deep breath. There's a way out of this because your manufacturer doesn't want this to happen either. They want it to be a long, prosperous relationship. Fast forward a week, crisis averted, all the samples are correct and we're good. But at the time it feels like the world's going to sink in, you know. Yeah. But I think 
it's taught me now is don't sweat the small stuff and don't don't put roadblocks there that don't need to be there. Back yourself in because really, what's the worst case? Sorry, that free big party that I'm going to put on, we're going to fast forward that to two weeks. People would have understood, but you just start to go into that protective mode of reputation. I always do everything perfect. What if this isn't perfect? What if I fail? But these aren't these aren't the big issues. They can get resolved when you've got the right people around you. So for me, a lot of those learnings now I look and kind of think are my superpowers, you know, and they're the stories that I can share now with someone who's going through this or somebody who's starting out that I can now go, hey, don't worry, you'll be better for this and you'll make better decisions. I launched in October last year and I had also been working on um, working with the Australian Grand Prix I was styling um, an ambassador, the ambassadors, there was two of them for that event and I was going to use my shoes. They were going to drop in March and we were going to do that. That was the plan, big plan, right? Logies not long after. Then Chinese New Year hits because they're manufactured in China and so there's that, there's that issue and so you're on hold. Okay, no worries. Then COVID-19 happens, right? And... The next thing you know, nothing's coming till May and you're like, what am I going to do now? I've got all this stock. What's going to happen? And it felt like the world had opened up and I'd fallen in. That's how it felt. It didn't look like that on Instagram. Like how did you get through that, launching a second shoe collection in the middle of a uh, pandemic and then what did you learn from the whole process because it launched just in June so what yeah. did you learn from it all um I'll try and not get emotional about it to be honest because it is it was a roller coaster I effectively had the same product because we had a resort range which was more just a top up of the first one that we did so launched October the 16th and then two weeks later I was styling like 40 books for the talent I was working with and plus dressing myself and being an ambassador for Bumble. So I had so much press and hype and it was amazing. We sold out, you know, the night we launched, we sold out of two styles. Celebrities, talent, my clients were promoting it, wearing it. It was it was amazing. Then this happens and you start to go, okay, right, we're going to have to think differently. We're going to have to pivot and adapt. Don't you think when, it, when COVID first hit, we're all using the words pivot and adapting? And I was like, well, what does this mean for me? I've got heels. I can't pivot and adapt to a sneaker, or I can, but I might not get it to August, September by the, with the rate that we're at the moment. Um, and I think, I think the first thing I did in, in being completely transparent and honest was I kind of broke a little bit. And when I say broke, I mean... The styling all but turned off. Uh, I was working on the Grand Prix at that time and it was the Friday before and Victoria basically went into lockdown. It was like, this isn't happening. So all styling work was now over and I knew that. Shoes weren't coming, but I knew if this kept going, I'm still going to have to pay for these when they get here and am I going to have anyone to market to? And so I very quickly made the decision that anything that I felt was not a versatile piece that could be worn multiple times in different ways had to come out. So we had, I wish I had it here to show you because it was so cool. It was like this um, metallic green, hot pink, white perspex. And it was a version of the L shoe that I've got now. Oh, wow. And it's so cool with denim. Like, so amazing. But I was like, 
we can't, I can't put that to market because that's going to scare people. So that's going to come out. And so I was very lucky. My manufacturer was incredible in working with us and pulling stuff out that we thought wasn't going to work and that wouldn't have been marketable. So that was the first thing that I did. I decided that we weren't going to wholesale anymore because we were making, like I was selling through really well online and the wholesalers that we did have, to be honest with you, when the pandemic hit, there was a couple that still owed us money and I'm very fortunate that I got that money back, but it was it was very, oh, it was one of those things because it's like I almost too felt bad even asking for it because I know they didn't have it, but at the same time they'd sold my product. So it's just that vicious circle, right? And that whole, we've all got to take care of ourselves. But innately, my nature is to always look after someone else. So I just wanted to remove that aspect of my business straight out of the gate. We focused very heavily online. I switched up my digital uh, marketing and made sure that that was with somebody who could really account for the, the money that could give me the data and the analytics old school. The way I had done it when I was at Westfield, the way I had done it when I was at um you know, Stockland, because it wasn't just going to be off, oh, it's Lana Wilkinson, it's going to sell. Because I don't feel that way. It's funny, the people around me were like, stop stressing, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. I'm like, you don't know that. I don't know that. And I'm really rolling a dice here. And I think it, there was a time where I was petrified and I'm really comfortable sharing this now. A few weeks ago I might have felt like I couldn't, but I was petrified because I thought, what if in trying to build my dream, I've effectively put my family on the line? And I was lucky I didn't have a lot of inventory left, thank goodness. I wasn't sitting because we'd sold a lot of it. So I was, what I was just pushing out was just leftover, thankfully. I didn't have any stores. I didn't have any staff that I couldn't keep. And my overheads were quite low. The key thing for me that saved me mentally, I think, was there's a beautiful man who's a really good friend of mine, Chris Contos, who's the creative director of uh, Melbourne Brand, he called Jack Abuki, who used to be the designer for Tyler. Chris knows everyone who's anyone in fashion and anyone who's in fashion knows Chris. And Chris was someone that I confided in straight from the outset about my shoe brand. And I got him to show me, tell me what he thought, give me all the tips and stuff. So when we talk about how did I get that information, I leaned on my friends and he said to me, if I can give you any advice, don't go too big too quick. He goes, because you won't, you won't be able to handle it. And that saved me because when I launched, because of my reputation and the contacts and the clientele that I had, I had all these offers from department stores, people put in orders, and I can't explain it to you, Suzanne, except that I had this feeling that went, not yet. And so I thank whatever higher power you believe in, <laughs> every day when this pandemic hit that I didn't take up those yeah. offers because I would have stuck with debt, I would have had, and I would have been, I'm not even a business that's a year old. Mm. So I'm grateful every day to Chris for, for making me, helping me make that decision. So we kept moving along. The stock arrived in May, had a mini kind of meltdown around then because then you're paying for everything and there's nothing coming in. <laughs> and then it started to turn in Victoria, as I'm sure your friends will tell you, um, and we could go out for dinners. And I don't know, I just woke up one day and I was like, I won't swear because I don't want to be rude, but I was like, effort, <laughs> roll the dice. You know what? I don't want to live like this anymore. If it's not good, it's not good. And if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. But I don't want to do this anymore. I need to push myself as well creatively. 
and we could get to a point where we could shoot. So I was like, right, we're shooting. We're going to do this. We're going to do videos. I'm throwing everything at it. And so we we went full gamut with digital and I we, you know, it was just myself and another um, amazing model, Tess. And, you know, and originally, to be honest, when we talk about changes, I was going to be more like my name, like and then being here and be like the boss lady and I'd do photos separately and then the models would do the talking. So, yes, it's Lana Wilkinson, the brand, Lana's the boss, and then there's the models. So that changed because you weren't allowed to be new people. I was like, right, so we're going to flip again and we're just going to own that and we're going to hope for the best. And then everything was, there wasn't a stone that wasn't unturned. I'm talking not, every image was accounted for. The product we used was very thought out. The set, we wanted it to be undone. I was like, I don't, I won't want to be tone deaf. There are people that, when you compare to the first one that I launched with, it was very fashion, it was style. I was in a big pink short gown. <laughs> like it didn't, it didn't feel authentic to me to do that this time around. It was like bring in a bit of fashion, get people excited, but make it feel relevant. And that's where the stylist came in and go, you know what? You need to make people feel good about this. You want people to feel excited. Don't scare them and don't make them feel like they can't have it because people need a little bit of hope right now. I know I do. So we definitely went down that road when we when we shot it. I guess I was trying to consider everything in terms of how it would be interpreted. And then I remember we went to, um, and we could still at that point in Victoria, go to a, a pub and there was a pub a couple of doors down literally from my office. And Hayley and I, Hayley had a laptop. Uh, Dan Castano, uh, who's a great photographer here in Melbourne, does a lot of stuff for Harper's Bazaar and things like that. Um, she'd done all the behind scenes, behind the scenes and um, now does a little bit of work for me as well. And we sat there with a glass of champagne and we waited. And I said to Hayley beforehand, I said, whatever happens, we've done our best, which had felt before that such a rattle roller coaster of or corona coaster of is it going to be good, is it not? If people hate it, they don't. And I just was like I'd sort of become at peace with it and said, whatever happens, we have there's no stone unturned we have done our job and this is out of our hands now anyway we had to flip the side over at like 658 which people don't tell you when they say start at seven because you've got to flip everything over so that it's working and i'd done 25 sales by seven o'clock and i'd said to Haley, if we do 20 i'm happy if so we two do minutes. not yeah <laughs> yeah maybe it was more than that actually but then it was it was literally like and it just kept going up and up and up and up and up and we started to sell out of the Georgia, which in shoe land, like that doesn't happen. It's not like clothes. Like, you know, you go, I want this top, I'll take it in, I'll alter it, I love it so much. You can't do that with shoes. If you're 40, you can't stick your foot into a 36, you know what I mean? Um, Megan Gale, who I'd named a shoe after, um, was the lower version of the Georgia and she's texting me saying, and I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, Lana, when am I telling people this is going out? Because I was originally going to drop that two weeks later. And Dan looked across and goes, the customer is telling you they want it now. So just get it out. And I, I just said to her, I'm sorry to do this to you, um, but tell them now. I'm going to flip it on. Just tell them now. And so next thing you know, the Megan starts going, I'm thinking, this is unreal. Like I can't. And then I was like, we've got to stop having a drink here. I need to go and start packing orders. And We'd sold out of the Georgia. I think I had maybe two or three pairs left of the Megan and halfway through of the other third style that we watched. Oh, that's and incredible. I, didn't, I couldn't even cry because there was nothing left. I had 
anticipated the worst for so long that by the time the best happened, I probably couldn't appreciate it to the next day. And then the reception that I received was overwhelming and I'm grateful. And I just kept saying, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful. I'm going to try and remember this moment and try and remember to back yourself in. I love my job. I love my brand. I love my customers. I love people that follow along and tell me that they get something out of it or they, they feel something or they wear the shoes for their wedding and, that, that you know, it's the best day and that people comment on it. Like it really, that's at the heart of why I do this. I can't even imagine how daunting it must have felt at times during that whole process, even right back at the start when you were at the very start of uh, the the shoe collection. Mm. What advice would you give to people when they're coming up against that fear and that self-doubt and they're wondering what the hell am I doing and they're questioning everything they're doing? What advice would you give people to get through those moments? Trust yourself. Lock out the noise. Do you? Because you wouldn't take those steps if you didn't know somewhere inside that you could do it. And it's ironic that I'm sitting here saying this to you now and I've said I'm talking about those moments of doubt like they're in the past. And if I'm being completely honest, I had those doubts three hours ago because there's talk of stage four and it's like what does that look like? What does that mean? What can I do? What feels authentic to me? And it's a very real feeling. But I've got to go back to, and it's ironic, it's, this is helping me almost, right? Do you back yourself in? Know what's right for you because you know that in your heart of hearts. And you know what? What's the worst that can happen? You know, I would say don't do something that you can't get yourself out of, you know. Like for me, my investment was was big, but I knew I could, I knew I wasn't putting myself in a hole. And, and I, no one really knows that, but I didn't think it would bomb. You know what I mean? Don't do it if you think, if nobody wants it, then I'd ask yourself why you're doing it because there needs to be a need, right? It's like in any business, in anything you do. It's like if you decide you're going to knock out the wall in your house. Well, what's on the other side of the wall? Do we need it or we don't? Or are we just making a mess? You know what I mean? <laughs> I think you've got to do something. It's a bad example, but you've got to do something. What's your purpose? Are you what's doing renovations intent? at the moment? I sure am. <laughs> That's what we have on Instagram. You have to like that. Oh, doll, I wish I could show you around. I have done everything. That's been the thing that's kept me sane as well. I've, I've justified it by saying I'm creating a new space for the shoes so that I've got new content places. But Love it. No, I'm painted. I've um, stripped all my floors back. I've paint, yeah, literally painted my whole house inside and out. Um, I've ripped walls off and put cladding up. And I'm working with an incredible um, interior stylist, um, Nicole Rosenberg, because I'm the first to say, you need an outfit or bag, shoes, creative direction, whatever, I'm your girl. But for homewares, nah. I know what I like, but I wouldn't know the first thing about putting it together. If we go back to when I was talking about business, it's like it's from the mistakes that opportunities to learn come, not from the wins. So maybe we're not winning, but we're winning. Does that make sense? So for me, the dreams I have for the brand are, I think this year, survive, and, and I think we will. You know, I've been very fortunate. I think we've done the work and the planning to survive. And I've said that to my husband too. He's been working from home for five months, and I said, it's just survive. We've got to get through this. The personal human growth is what we're going to win with, you know, this year. 
for next year. I'm like, I want to be able to, you know, perhaps do a collaboration with someone and or, you know, potentially partner with a designer and do their runway if we ever do those again. You know, I think I think there's lots of things that we can bring our skill sets to. And I just I just want to make people feel good. I just want people to feel good with their fashion. I want people to feel good in their shoes. I and I just want to be that person I want to go back to being that conduit to help people because that's why I did this in the first place and that's what lights me up so yeah what is success for you being happy being happy is success for me like it's interesting because I've never answered that question like that before I've always said success is selling all my shoes or being the best at styling being the best mum but being happy and at peace happy and at peace because you can make so many great decisions when you're happy and you're at peace, whether it be for me being a really great parent, being a good mum, being a good colleague, being a good manager, being a good designer, being a good friend. You can think clearer when you're happy and you're at peace. And I say that to my girls because they're at an age, Ava's um, seven and Al is four. And we, um, you know, little things like learning to ride a bike. And they're like, but I'm not the best at it, mummy. I thought, oh, no, she's like a mini version of me. And I've said, "You, I want you to know that the best is trying. When you try, you're the best. Because when you're trying, you're going to be the best because you're always going to be aiming to get better. So I think that philosophy is, is what I try and be in my life now. But I wasn't thinking that way before the pandemic been an absolute pleasure talking to you so thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me and all the best stay safe and bring on 2021 absolutely (laughs) thanks thank you for listening to freedom hunters i hope you enjoyed this episode if you enjoyed it please don't forget to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts You can find out more about what I'm passionate about on my website, suzannedelahunty.com or Instagram at suzannedelahunty, including a very exciting new project that I'm working on and will be launching very soon.